Let's let's do my old radio intro. Go do it's it. It's time once again for the best damn show on the radio. This is the IDC, and I'm your host, Jason Heat. For the next two hours of Sonic Power, I will be fighting with you on the musical front lines of good taste and better music. To my right is my co-host. He is the unknown penguin. Mr. Patrick Flynn, you are listening to WMUC 88.1 on the dial, number one in your heart. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn, playwright, filmmaker, and professor of communications at American University. In each episode, we invite someone from the theater who you'd see on stage, backstage, or in the house to discuss an original cast album they love. And today, we are joined by the artistic director of Flying V Theater. It's Jason Slofstein. Hey, everybody. It's me. It's Jason. And me. And Jason. And... Jason is here to talk about a show near and dear to my heart and a show I hope we keep coming back to because there's two or three cast albums uh, it has. It's the gift that keeps on giving One, in musical theater. That's true. Why don't you tell the folks what it is? We are going to be exploring the album of chess. One night in London cast out. The London studio concept recording. So Monica. I have to be honest with you. When I had it, I had it on audio cassette. Oh, okay. So I didn't even have this fine, fine double C- disc set that you were holding disc RCA right that now. I see in front of me. Yeah. No, I had the classic audio cassette. I don't really know where to begin with chess. Um, so I'm going to begin with where you begin with chess. Where do you begin with chess? So I begin with chess... Because it is the first show that I ever did. I remember sitting in the atrium of the Jewish Community Center in Greater Washington in Rockville when I was, I guess, 11 years old, making fun of a friend of mine who was in Tommy that year at the Summer Theater of the Summer Theater of the Arts for Youth Stay, which was the summer camp that was uh, right. at the time actually run by Roundhouse Theater's associate uh, producer, Denisha Crosby. I just remember one year, like, making fun of him for dancing, and then t- I, I don't have any other memory other than the next year suddenly <laughs> I was in that camp. And then I was doing it. Uh, and that was my first. And, and what they did is they would pick these shows, um, and they we would do a version of it, and totally illegally. Sorry, oh, to spoil. God. Oh, they would just adjust the scripts to fit the students and kids that they had, and oh, okay. things would be changed. And um, that happened until a few years after I was done, and they did Chicago, and the people who owned Chicago found out and oh, then said, yeah. no, no, you either have to do Chicago or you're not doing it. This was a group of like 13 to 17-year-olds, and right. that Chicago was problematic. A little, so, a little racy. Um, but when we did it, 
so I did chess. I'd never heard of it before. I had never done a show before. I remember I auditioned, and I believe that my monologue, because I had no idea what a monologue was, I did the Superman radio show intro as my monologue, because all I knew it was like a, needed to be a paragraph of text. Right. So I did, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. Yes, Superman, strange visitor from another planet. And I knew the whole thing, and I did that whole thing like that, and that was my monologue. And then I think... I did, I don't remember if it was, it, there were concurrent years. I either did If I Only Had a Brain by from The Wizard of Oz, sure. or I did Fastball's Fire Escape. Those two very different songs. Two very different, very songs. different songs. I know I yeah, did one of them. Very different songs. And I got in, and we did chess. And so much like most people now, I think what we did was a kind of version of the American and Yeah, there's European. so many different versions of this show. And the one that we did was totally like an amalgam. Of, an amalgam and, yeah. and, and adjusted. But the album that I got to listen to over and over and over again to prepare for the actual auditions. So the way it works is you would audition for the camp mm-hmm. and then you'd audition for, for the, the show. Okay. Um, and so I got the, the British one without knowing it and just listened to that. Over. Oh, so you just, you just bought it. They didn't tell you which one to buy. You no, just bu- I just bought oh, it. I just went to the okay. store and I think this is the only one they had sure. in the store at the time. So I got it and I just listened to it over and over and over again uh, and chess was the first show that I ever did and I was the arbiter I'm on a case can't be fooled any objection is all the rules yes I'm the arbiter and I know best he's impossible don't push him you've got your tricks good for you but there's no gamut I don't see through oh I'm the arbiter and know the score Which is handy, right, because that song isn't on the Broadway recording, the Arbiter song. So if you had been cast as the Arbiter and had the cast album for the the other one, you would have been a little lost, It's funny, I didn't, like, I didn't, I guess I didn't really fully at the time get leads versus I, I wanted sure. to be the arbiter I think either that or I wanted to be Freddie that makes sense the arbiter's the arbiter's so great much fun. and that song yeah. is so much fun and I just remember auditioning and I must have walked back and forth across the stage the entirety of the time because when right. the audition was over um, JJ Kaczynski who's mm-hmm. an actor in the area um, who was the other person who was running the camp was like that's great doing great do it again this time stand entirely still <laughs> Wow. <laughs> um, and I did. I got that particular role. And so chess was the first show I ever did. Um, that's how I got started. I just actually wrote and directed my first musical, You Were Whatever I Can Get. And I can trace that linkage, that that show in some way, shape, or form goes back to, to chess. chess. Yeah. Um, and like most people who start doing theater in middle school or high school, my early years were filled with a lot of musicals and doing those kinds of shows. And then as I hit college, I found more of what I'm more personally interested, which is a lot of new devised created work. Mm. But musicals have always still been a thing. And I've always been really obsessed with the idea of creating musicals that have more of modern day music in it and that still maybe have odes to the classic musical theater style but mm-hmm. then originally before it be kind of came I don't want to say calcified because that's that's too harsh but before it became set well, established it's, established I mean, yeah. as its own musical style right. musical theater was meant to be the popular music of the times we're seeing with things like Hamilton now that that adaptation can keep going yeah, every couple of years something comes along 
and shakes musical theater out of its complacency in some way. Yeah. And in this, you know, now right now it's Hamilton. And but it, and I'm interested in, yeah. like, going even further. Like, what is it like to do shows that are more actor-musician-based? And what is it like to do shows that really live entirely in the world of a specific kind of different music than musical theater? But I also have a deep mm-hmm. DNA built into classic musical theater that's always going to be a part of the way that I think of song structure and stuff like that. And... Um, I mean, Chess was such an interesting show to be my first one because it is such it's a that. concept rock album. I was going to say, you're describing Chess. Like, what you're yeah. describing is a, is a it, it's 1984 when that album came out. It's ABBA, the songwriters from ABBA, tail end of ABBA. Like, ABBA's tailing out as they're mm-hmm. tailing into this. And it is that. It is, I mean, the, the Arbiter song is straight 80s pop. It's synth rock, One Night yeah. in Bangkok is straight 80s pop. But then you have songs like... Um, and One Night in Bangkok. Like Heaven Help My Heart and Anthem, which are straight music theater, too. I mean, just absolute music theater songs. And wouldn't be out of place in any Broadway score of the time. So it is, and, and they go together. Those four songs I named do actually flow and do go together and fit in the same show. So it, it, it seems like this show was very influential to you in terms of your taste going forward. It is. Yeah. And I have, I have a real soft spot for it. And I still really like it. And one Night in Bangkok is the last Broadway song to be a, a top 40 hit. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. In the United States. In the yes. United States. Yes. Yeah, it's the last one. I think one. that's right, yeah. Uh, which is such a weird... Though I don't know if Hamilton's got any singles that would crack. Singles aren't really a thing anymore. No, it's yeah. it's a totally different... The album has. Market. The album's broken in, but yeah, that's happened before, too. But that's so it's, it's so in, a, in a weird way, it's this weird last of a dying breed kind of show, mm-hmm. too. The last musical that... Before Hamilton, I mean, Rent clearly also hit the. the yeah, mainstream. that's what I'm saying. Like every couple of years, these shows come along that just like shake it up. But it's the last one that had a song that was like a pop song played on the radio. Mm-hmm. In the yeah. way that. In the was... way, and it was a modern song. I mean, there's a lot of people who know One Night in Bangkok and yes. have no idea that it's part of a show. Bangkok, they just think of it. Oriental setting. Of the city don't know. <laughs> well, that's if you've not listened to. I think it's Nerdist Podcast, Josh Groban's episode of Nerdist Podcast, which if you have a low opinion of Josh Groban, I highly recommend. He's a hilarious human being and is very funny with everybody on Nerdist. But he talks about, as you mentioned just before we got started, he did a concert version of Chess with Adam Pascal and Indina Menzel. And um, he played the Russian. And he talked about it. And they all knew One Night in Bangkok but did not know it was from a show. And to hear them, like, talk about this song that they just thought was this bizarre, like, 80s single. Like, whatever, it's Murray Head, and it's a single, and who cares? It doesn't really need to mean anything. And they're like, no, no. He's like, no, it's part of this whole show. where like, this guy plays chess, and he's a character. And they were just like, oh, my God, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. It's like, well, it kind of is, but it's also awesome. It is sort of the thing where if you just heard it completely out of context, it's no weirder than I'm turning Japanese or any of the other Right, as an 80s song. Yeah, yeah, certainly, just, no. I never thought about that. He also doesn't really it. sing it, I noticed. this Listening to this album again, because I knew the Broadway one first and then speaks got it. this. He does. He kind of talk sings it. Yeah. Not even raps it. He just talk sings it. The line that I always think of is, Zion's going to be the witness to the ultimate test of cerebral me more than would a muddy old river or reclining Buddha. Thank God I'm only watching the game, controlling it. He says cerebral because he's British, not cerebral fitness. Um, There's so many quotable lines in that particular song. Yeah. It's a drag, so, it's a bore. It's really such a pity to, to be, be looking, looking at the, the board, board not looking at the city. Oh, what do you mean? You see one crowded, polluted, stinking town? You've seen them all. So <laughs> we could, we did do, it, it should be noted, 
I think, for for our listeners, because only two or three other people witnessed this, you and I, I think, really became friends because of this show. It's true. That's also a thing. last, it was 2015, Play in a Day in Bethesda, which if you're in the area, please come to Play in a Day in Bethesda. It's every February. Um and I was by the fine folks at Bethesda Urban at Bethesda Partnership, who are fine folks, and Entertainment Board. presented at the uh, Imagination stage. And you were there rep- directing for Flying V. I was there writing and directing for Adventure Theater, MTC. And we got snowed out. This is a one day we get, you know, you write and produce a play in one, one 24-hour period. And we were, it was like 4 o'clock in rehearsals. And it was we like got, the, yeah, it was, it was like the it sixth was an, or seventh hour. And it was an epic snowstorm. I mean, it was, yeah. people couldn't drive. It was bad. And the metro was closed was the other problem. The I don't metro think was, anyone was like more upset than me too. You they've, were pretty upset. They've yeah. told me that. They've, the, the organizers have come back and been like, you were by far. You were most. you were pretty emotional about it. Yeah, I it was great. I really wanted to do the show. No, I'm down, and I saw. You. I'm one of the few people who saw the show. We That's all because you watched mine and we watched yours, and it was great. And then we all, you and I, and a couple people from Flying V, went to get some food at one of the last like places that was, that was open, open and drank a bunch of wine and ate some pretty rich food. And I think we had a Russian waiter also too, because you and I started somehow talking about chess, and we started singing. I think. Anthem had to be enough. to this mostly empty restaurant. How can I leave her? Where would I start? Let man's petty nations tear themselves apart. My land's only. Sort of to the mortification of the people we were with, but not to the mortification of the waitstaff, who was, I think, down. No, and uh, probably for the best that it was the mostly Oh, absolutely. And we didn't, like, stand on the table or anything, but we certainly also weren't hushed in our our performance. How can you sing Anthem Hushed? (laughs) It's a song of passion. But this is this thing about this show. Like, this is a... Chess is a show that I think music theater people know and and the general public generally doesn't. This is not a show that goes outside of the theater community. And people within the theater community have their own opinions about it. I think it's a, it, like from objectively speaking, is a flawed show. But there are those of us who love the show beyond reason, beyond rational. It has nothing to do with the quality of the show and such. But it came into our lives in a specific time and sticks with us. I could listen to this show endlessly, it seems to me, which I didn't think, going back and listening to it again, this is not my preferred recording, but I still plowed through this. It's a flawed show, particularly as a drama event, but as music and as an album, it has incredible moments and incredible songs and incredible music. It's just as an actual play that I think it has its flaws. And I think they know that that's why they've been adjusting it forever. But there are some brilliant moments. The thing for me that I realized... Going back, because in preparation for this, I not only listened to the album again, but I also found that Josh Groban concert and started mm-hmm. to watch it. Yeah, that whole thing's on YouTube if you want to check it out. And I, I was struck watching it, and this was a concert version, but one of the things I was struck with is that the play has like four openings before mm. it actually gets into the heart of these characters. Because you start in that version, and that's different than this, but in that version... It starts with the story of chess. It right? starts with the story of chess. Right. And then it goes to Murano. Oh. 
so it includes both. So okay, um, the opening ceremony. Oh really? Yeah, with the arbiter, and this is all before wow. we even before get... we get where I want to be, like the Russian song. Yes, all before wow. we get to where I want to be. The Russians doesn't even appear outside of a moment until the fourth or fifth song. Wow. Yeah. At least in that concert version. And that's one of the things that I realized. Once you get to the actual moments and confrontations and Mm -hmm. the drama of the four characters, uh, it really is a very compelling piece of drama. I didn't realize that it was as flawed a show in some ways that it might be because, like I said, we did a weird amalgamated version where they just picked all the best parts of whatever they wanted to do to fit their cast. Right, and threw it all together. So we did each game of chess, the history of chess, and completely skipped Murano. And I Mm -hmm. think went straight to, like, the press conference. um, Right, which is sort of jumps right into it, kind of. So just for for listeners who may not be familiar with the story, it is not – I don't want to dwell on the plot too much because it's not much of a plot, but it – do you want to try to give your best summary of – Well, I'm going to try to remember all of it. The the long and the short of it is a a play that is about – the Cold War, right. uh, an intrigue, and a match between two champion chess players, one from America, Freddie Trumper, who I believe is loosely based off of Bobby Fischer, yes. um, and a Russian named Anatoly Sergeyevsky. Um, and the other main two characters are Florence Vassy, who is Freddie the American's girlfriend slash second, and Anatoly's wife. And over the course of the show... <laughs> Weirdly, it's kind of like closer with playing chess in a musical <laughs> where they basically just sort of like swap partners and have and it's not it's not nearly as angry as that, but basically Anatoly defects to the United States and as part of that whole thing, Florence leaves Freddie and goes to Anatoly and um if I remember correctly because the end is where I get a little more fuzzy, I think they all go back to the original. Well, that's the thing that keeps changing. Between is, productions is it, how the thing actually, the thing actually ends. ends up. Uh, the it's funny that you say that Svetlana, who is Anatoly's wife, is the fourth character because I would have said it's Molokov, who is Anatoly's kind of handler yes. from the KGB. Um, there it's is a certain I know him so well. It is, is such a great song. Oh, it is that you can't, absolutely. Like, but she only comes in in the like second half of Act Two. That's why I wouldn't. Now she's there from that moment on. She's, yeah, she's down. But yeah, so it, it is kind of it, it's part love story between the Russian chess player and Florence, played by Elaine Page in the recording we're, we're dealing with today, and Tommy Korberg plays the Russian, um, and she sort of so it's sort of this love triangle between the American, the Russian, and Florence. There's also this political intrigue aspect between Molokov. And Florence, because there's a lot of stuff about her father, her father and, and, prison. and whether he's still alive or not. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of political intrigue then also between the American and his sort of psychosis and like how he plays, tries to play both sides and how that kind of falls apart. That's what changes the most among the versions, because in the version in the studio version, as I understand from reading the booklet, the plot basically is, is that in act one. The Russian defeats the American in chess, and then the Russian defects. He is just called the Russian and the American in this recording. He doesn't have a name. Um, he defects to the, the West. And then in Act 2, he doesn't play the American. He plays somebody else in chess. Really? And beats him uh, in a sort of defiant... Because he's told by the American that, like, if you throw the match 
and go back to Russia, you will like we won't tell Florence the truth about her father. And he kind of he wins in this version. The Russians like screw everybody. I'm going to win the game. He wins. And then like Florence finds out that her father was a traitor. And it's like this huge depressing downer of an ending in the Broadway version. He throws the match on purpose to spare Florence the truth about her father to Mm -hmm. sort of let her be happy, which is much more what you'd expect in a sort of traditionally tragic love story that he would do the noble thing, sacrifice himself for her betterment. Um, but it's, yeah, it, so the, the plot is very unclear, I think, from just, and it seems to wildly differ between, because like the, the West End version, as I understand it, which was a big hit. I mean, the version of the West End ran for three years. It was a sizable hit, but it was a lot more operatic and it was a lot more, there's like recitative and, and like very sung through, like Les Mis is, for example. And when they brought it to America, they kind of added a book. Mm-hmm. And then this amalgamated version comes out, which is what you see now, like of concerts and people when they do it, it's done in colleges around and they usually take sort of elements from all the recordings and elements from all the different productions and kind of make something for Imagine their own. Imagine you can get the rights to do that at this point. I would think so. Yeah. They're like just happy the... that you're doing the show, frankly. Yeah. Um, which means that honestly, there's probably a really kind of perfect version that's out somewhere, there. If you could just somewhere. If you could just pick find and it. choose and carve and if you had access to... To everything, there's a way to edit it down. To just it's in be there somewhere because really that score is gorgeous. It's remarkable, and there's moments that stick out. I mean, yes, it was the first show that I ever did. Um, it has a really special place in my heart for that. But I think if the very first show that I ever did was something that was uh, meh, then I maybe would have affinity, but I wouldn't have the same level of just vivid memory of like the rooftop scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the duet, just, yeah. Yeah, the duet, just lines from that that just pop out. I think one of the biggest things that struck me is listening to the show now at age 30. Mm-hmm. When the, la- the I first listened to this show at the age of 12, listening to some of these songs. So I, at the time, Pity the Child was yeah. the song that I was drawn to intensely. I still think it's it's one of the best mm-hmm. written. Hitting that note at the end is always one of my high points for me. Mm-hmm. Like a singer. I did that for college auditions. I remember that was my musical song that I did. And that's, for whatever reason, that's the song that I, I was drawn to. Um, kid, I didn't have any of those specific issues as a kid, but just anyone... You know, young, angry guy who's kind of well, and it's, passionate it, and brilliant and f- raging against his parents and stuff like that. Right. It was very drawn And it's to a very that. accessible song, the way Tim Rice structures the lyrics. Tim Rice, who I'm not on balance a huge fan of, I have to say. I think this is probably his best work as mm-hmm. a lyricist. And it's his project. It was his idea. It's his inception. He got uh, Anderson and Oveas involved. This is his baby. And... The way he tells that story, he has the American tell the story very simply, matter-of-factly, with these little details yes. that just make it, first of all, completely relate, like you wonder, it, it very vivid, but also that just break your heart. Yes. Betty the child who knew his parents saw their faults, saw their love die before his eyes. Pity the child that was He never asked did I cause your distress Just in case they said yes 
When I was 12, my father moved out Left with a whimper, not with a shout I didn't miss him, he made it perfectly clear I was a fool and probably queer you get him, and it's a long song. I mean, it's a five and a half, six minute song, but not a. I wouldn't take a bar out of that thing. No, like, it's, it is. It's incredibly it is an efficiently tight, tight well written song. That an anthem. I mean, I think both. Yeah, of them. And, but so the thing, I was drawn to those two songs, and I mm-hmm. still am. Yeah, but listening to it back, I was caught very off guard by how emotionally affected I was by I know him so well. That's and, a good one. And listening to those two women talk about the sort of inevitability of losing someone mm-hmm. and and honest pain here. This is a very complex relationship, this acceptance of losing somebody and how badly you don't want it. It's not the simplicity that as a young person, I was like, just fight for them. Don't lose them or they suck like good guys and bad guys. The, the nuance of that loss and understanding you had something with this person, but, um, they have to go off and be with somebody else. Well, that you are not that the the thing they're both realize. I mean, it's a really interesting song between a wife and the woman her husband is sleeping with, um, and which has just been like, and they're very famous. Like in the context of the show, this has been all over TV. Like as the previous scene, it's a great yeah. little argument between Florence and the Russian. Um, in the song, it, it's sort of between two women who realize that. They're involved with a man who will never, like, they will never be the most important thing in their life. Yes. In his life. It, it's chess is the most important thing in his life. His game, that's the thing that he will always, will always come first, which is kind of the thing, the tragedy of the Russian, I mean, in a way, is that that is the thing. He's always put that first. And in the scene before, when they had this argument, and she's getting emotional about, you know, Florence very logically is reacting to the fact that like his personal life's like they're all over television and he's she's furious and he's just like I can't think about that right now I have to play this game that's all I can think about and it's for her this tragedy of that's just what Freddie's like he's all about chess that's all the, the time she's and she's left to. she's left a man who's ex- for another man who she thought was totally different he's actually exactly the same in in at, at the core and that connection she has with Svetlana, the Russian's wife, is in this like, and the thing they say, you know, isn't it madness that he won't be mine? It's this just, this is insane. This is completely crazy. And there's, it's kind of the only solace she gets. The line that killed me. That's good, right? thinking about my life and relationships I've had and things that I've been going through recently, actually, and stuff like that, just but like, this very, when I was young, when I was, no, uh, when I was young, (laughs) I had a very black and white, to put all the puns in, uh, view of of love. Mm -hmm. Love was this extraordinarily, you're either in it 
or you're not in it and you're in it forever and love is is pure it was very much shakespearean kind of religious because i'm an atheist Mm -hmm. and i don't believe in that and i don't have a very strong sense of my family life is complicated and i don't the family unit actually makes me uncomfortable it's not to speak ill of my family but just like there's things that Mm -hmm. happen that so for me for a long time this idea of true love was very fundamental and basic to me and i had this very strong idea that like when you were in love you would know it and it would conquer over everything that there was nothing more powerful in the universe or the world than that and it was the thing that i wanted most in and i believed in and the first time that I had my heart broken, it was absolutely devastating. And I know that if I, I talked to friends of mine who were around me from before that event to now, they'll say that I'm not the same person and that, like, everyone has those moments. Yeah. And I don't know that for everybody their heart being broken is actually that. A lot of people it is, but not everybody has this. People have certain deaths or whatever. For me, that was – I've never fully figured it out after that. Like, I've never fully figured out the sense of, like, if I was so wrong, um, my idea of what love is – is still went from complete certainty to something that, I don't know, it's not quite as certain. I'm still mm-hmm. working through that and figuring that out. Sure. It doesn't mean I don't feel it or have it. It just means that it's significantly more complicated. So 13-year-old Jason probably would have looked at a line like he needs his fantasy and freedom and the acceptance of that and mm-hmm. been like, just been angry. Mm-hmm. Been like, how do you, that, that either that's not real love or you're letting him do it or what an asshole, whatever that might be. And 30-year-old Jason looks at that and goes like, it's such a such a level of understanding and compromise, and at the same time, it's so sad, and it's so sad because it's real, and she is accepting that. And I also get it because I recently, you know, had a conversation where I'm exploring sort of a, a non-monogamous paradigm for the first time, and seeing what that is, and not knowing how I feel about that yet and I'm just revealing a lot of personal stuff now. That's fine. But we can edit it out later no, if you want me fine. to. No, it's fine. I just, you know, because I, I want to because I, I, I love but I also am trying to figure out mm-hmm. all the different words and because of where I am as a person, I, I heard those words in a way that I've literally never heard them before and that was very powerful and unexpected when I listened to that song back this time. Mm. It spoke to me very differently. In a different way. And yeah. I don't know that it spoke to me even necessarily in the way that the song is intending it to speak to it, but just I was so struck by those two lines and how nuanced a perspective on sadness and sacrifice and relationships is in just those two lines. Well, it's a very – I mean, to me, what you're talking about is growing up. Right. And that's yeah. not – it isn't to say – that when I was a child, I thought of child, you know, but then I put away childish things and, and realized that there's no such thing as that other kind of love. I think, I mean, to me, for me, getting your heart broken is something everyone really should go through. I believe everyone should be dumped at some point in their life and completely blindsided if possible. Because, no, I'm serious. And this is a terrible thing. But, like, it was the first time it happened to me. It's happened to me a couple times. Sure. It was the like it was devastating, yeah, in a serious way. But I made it. But like life went on, and when you go through something traumatic like that, I mean, when you're 15 or 16, as I was, and Edgy Bates dumped me on a trampoline on Labor Day, you know, it, it's sort of one of those moments in your life where it's before and after in a very clear way. But it gave me compassion. 
to understand because I had broken up with a girl to date her. I had dumped a girl hard to, to break to date this other girl. And there was this feeling I had later of like, oh, this is karma, like in some way. But also, oh, I could have handled that better. Like I now, sure. like I, I was able to look at this and be like, that was bad what I did. I could have done that better because now I know how this feels. It just gives you that appreciation for how someone else is feeling. And I have friends who have never been broken up with. And it, it, it just, it feels to me like they're missing out. They missed a very clear life experience that I think you should have when you're 15, 16, 17, and it's kind of safe. You can have these like... Maybe that's why I just, because I'm not disagree. I agree with you. Mine was at 21. Okay. So well, that's fine. That's still not married and like like because now these people are off in a different phase of relationships. Sure, absolutely. Is what I mean. Because I'm a little older than you. Like these are people who are a little bit. The relationships they're in now are are a second level, as you would hope they are in your you know in your 30s and your late 20s and 30s. But you know, mid 20s and back, you can still kind of get even if you're like really into somebody and even if you're living together, you can still kind of get crushed. In a pretty safe way, like maybe you lose a lease, but like you're not devastating your credit or you don't own a car together. Like, you know what I mean? Like these things take on another level when you get into your late 20s and you have more money and more responsibilities. And if you haven't got that that knowledge that like I can be completely destroyed by a person, still wake up the next morning, which is your own personal like self-reliance, and then also be like, and I'm still willing to love again. Like I'm still willing to like go through this as Woody Allen said, the insanity of like, you know, you keep going through it because you need the eggs. Like, it's just, it's crazy. But it's, there's this mature, and that's what the song to me has, is like this mature resignation of just like, she's, it's this very sort of just simple like, yeah, you know, I know him well, and this is what it is, and this is what he needs, and this is what I need, and this is not going to work. And she's sad about the relationship ending, but it's not this sort of devastating, soul-crushing crying out of her window kind of princess nonsense. It is a very mature and measured reaction. But isn't that kind of sad in its own oh, way? Oh, it's very sad. I'm I not mean, saying it's not sad. I, it's just... I think even that we get to that place, there's something I've often struggled with, to be perfectly honest, knowing that is that is the definition in a lot of ways of maturity. That mm-hmm. is the definition of growing up. That is what happens. And I'm still working my way through this. So I don't have a real answer. Maybe I'm playing devil's advocate to a certain extent. But there's always been something that has really bothered me actually about the human capacity to get over everything and the sort of law of mm-hmm. diminished effects because I feel like if you can't be hurt at the level that you used to be, can you actually love at the same intensity and level? You like each time does it take some of the edge off, but does that taking off the highs and the ability to truly open your heart in the same way and the vulnerability? Is there a way to is there a way to give everything at the same level as before except for the pain? And I don't think that there is. So there's a part of me that looks at that and says, was it possibly doomed from the start, not only because of all the crazy circumstances, not only because of the intrigue, not only because of who he is, but because once you've gone through that and you've gotten to a place where you can't handle things more rationally, are you not able to dive as deep into the entire world of that that kind of intense emotional love experience? I don't know if that's true, but I do constantly wonder if I'll ever feel as much about anything as I have felt about things in the past. What you're describing, I think, is the danger we fall into when we when experience triumphs over our own emotional reaction. To me, 
real emotional and intellectual maturity is getting the crap kicked out of you and then being able and willing to put everything back in the next time and open yourself up to the same level of devastation. It is not something that everyone is capable of because of the, like you say about the pain and things like that. And I'm not even talking, let's just take off the table things like abuse and anything like that. Like no, that's no, its no, own absolutely. conversation yeah, yes, yes. and that's its own series of, of issues that need to be worked through. No, just We're just the, talking about basic two people who- I love you and you don't love me anymore. Right. Or you fall out of And it all falling exactly. apart in a very yes. basic way, yeah. My, my eternal hope is that you- and the reason I say, like, I think everybody should get dumped is like what I would hope is you would get dumped and then have friends, first of all, who can get you just get you through it. But then also have the like that you would then turn the mirror inward a little bit and be like, OK, this is me now and this is what I can take from this and learn and put my sure. chips back on the table and go for it again. Because that's what I hear in that song. I hear mainly from Florence not from Svetlana Svetlana has a very is a very sad story to me because i get the feeling she's not going to get out of this marriage like this is just her life yes i think so and every now and again she meets the woman he's involved with but he's never really you know, it, it's just kind of this weird situation she's trapped in which i think is kind of one of the things they're trying to deal with with the cold war this whole aspect of being sort of a prisoner of a system yes. on both sides Svetlana, to me, is the tragic figure. What you get from Florence, especially from singing with Svetlana, is the like, I'm, 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 I'm moving along here. She's a very self, like she, she, she's going to grow. She's going to turn. She's going to evolve. That's kind of that's the feeling I get anyway. It's a very hopeful, sad, but sad doesn't mean hopeless to me. Well, right, and that's the thing. That's the difference. She's Florence is the one that says, but in the end, he needs a little bit more than me, more security. Mm-hmm. The idea that someone who will always be there, no matter what, like. Yeah, which Svetlana. is what Svetlana is, yeah. Right, and then Svetlana says he needs his fantasy and freedom. Yeah. She just knows that this is part this is of what it is, and this is what it is, and mm-hmm. this is what she's kind of accepted. And wasn't it good? Wasn't he fine? Right. Isn't it madness? He won't be he mine. He won't be mine. It's just, it's, yeah, it's very, it's very honest. And didn't I know? I mean, they sing together. Didn't I know how it would go if I knew? Knowing that there's like... But if there's a part of you you're holding back. There's just a, a teeny bit... Yeah, there's a teeny bit of scar tissue. There's mm-hmm. something that hasn't fully stitched together that there's something that's still hiding for fear. And I think for me, like I said, so much of that came from this idea that like this was the core of the universe. And if mm-hmm. I could be so wrong about the thing that I was the most confident about in the world, how can I ever be that? We usually are, though. I mean, that's being... That's again... Sure. There are these moments... Like, it, it's, it's the problem of... You you have your faith tested, and it comes up wanting. Now, do you then throw the whole thing away, or do you even worse, like double down in the other direction and ignore the truth? No, the, it's the balance. It's the quest, and it's the fact that one of the things that drives me crazy in in, in drama, especially, is when there is sort of a there's this goal oriented aspect we have, especially in Western culture, of like, no, we'll just do this, and then I'll be fine. We'll just find this person and then I'll be fine. Sure. We'll just get married, I'll be fine. I'll just get this job and then I'll be fine. I'll just buy that car and then I'll be fine. And it's not true. We are constantly evolving. We should yeah. be constantly evolving. 
and I really feel that it's one of the the, the things of, of art, of writing, of music, of whatever, to raise more questions, to raise questions and not necessarily answer them. And in fact, probably don't answer them. It's, it's you know, the, the thing, and you and I have talked about this before, is what you want to do to me is raise these questions and then get the audience out there and then they figure it out for themselves, which I think this, this sort of, this show does pretty well, especially because it's got three characters at its center who have three very different points of view all of which get shaken, and they come out in three very different directions. I mean, you have even with the American coming out still pretty cynical, we at least understand where his scar tissue comes from and where he comes from with the pity of the child. But you have at the end, when you have you and I, between the Russian and Florence, this duet of just, you know, you could not give me more than you gave me, you know, I cannot want you more than I want you, but it's still not going to work. Like, it's still just not, I couldn't have done anything different. And it's just still just not going to be the relationship it should have been. And we can judge for ourselves whether we think they're telling the truth, whether we think they are, you know, whether they could have done something different, whether they could have been more, and all those other, those wonderful things. The show kind of leaves it up to us to decide. What's your favorite song? My favorite song uh, from this recording yeah. is, uh, I'm going to look at the list real fast to make sure, because my favorite song that's in the show is not on this recording, which is Someone Else's Story. Um, right. I can't, so we yeah. also did Someone Else's Story. Yeah. In I mean, that's such a version. Great, I can't. That, I'm also very biased towards the Broadway production because Florence is played by the queen, Judy Kuhn, Long May She Reign. And she, I, I just think that's her best performance on a recording until Fun Home, pretty much. It is just the way she performs. So, like, if I'm going to listen to Heaven Help My Heart, I'm going to listen to Judy Kuhn sing it, not Elaine Page. If I'm going to listen to um, the Mountain Duet, I'm going to listen to Judy Kuhn. I, See, it's I, funny. It's about the Mountain Duet in this version. That One of the moments that sticks out to me every time I think of this, of all things, is very specifically uh, the Russian singing. This is my to break up the moon. Get to the point, begin the beginning. Haven't you noticed we're a protagonist short in this idyllic, well-produced scene? That, that, yeah, that little that section little is side. burned. That's good. Into it's me. a great. It's that, and it's a scene. It's rhythm. a musical scene up there with like. Like, uh, what is it? If I Loved You from Carousel and like some of those other like song scenes that you have. I think it stands shows. out a it's lot really in this well done. version too because surprisingly there's not as many song scenes as you'd think for a show that yeah. is primarily just sung. There's a lot of, there's a few and there are, but that one really does feel like a scene in mm-hmm. a way that a somebody, fully realized A scene. fully realized yeah. scene in a way that some of these others don't always feel that way. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the thing to me that's the strongest part of the show, absolutely, is 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 the music more than oh anything. yeah, and the, absolutely the, the actual songs and the music and just I guess part of what I love and was forgot about in this version is how much it feels like a synth pop album. 
Mm-hmm. It does. Um, I mean, it's it's yeah. so. And it's Synthy. like it's uh, what's funny about it to me is it's like ABBA with the London Symphony Orchestra, like because there are these yeah. moments where it's just straight. Like I mean, the, the way the opening ceremony begins, I have the duty as the referee at the start of the match. Like that is straight ABBA. You could just get that, but then it swells like Murano. Like, Murano, like, yeah, it just has this luscious. Murano is the song that I'm so like most disappointed in because the lyrics to Murano are almost too clever. Because um, you can't hear them. You can't hear them no. with the chorus singing the way they do. Because there's some pretty funny little lines that, like, the mayor has. Like, I don't mind uh, all major credit cards taken. Of course, like, it's yeah, that's pretty, the one that stands. It's out. It's a funny little song, and it, but the lyrics get completely swallowed with this chorus singing about. Murano. Yeah, Murano's never done it for me, except for the American section, which is right. awesome, which is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It comes in and. great it's so good it's so good i mean i think the biggest flaw the show has now that i'm looking at it is that i do think that there's just in the new version not this version you've got the story of the game of chess Mm -hmm. followed by murano like what's just so many setting the scene without getting into the actual oomph and the heart and the thrust of it Mm -hmm. so there's just a lot of beautiful fat yeah, and you don't need that fat because at the end of the day, what I I don't I want to know about these people and setting up the history of chess and setting up the political system and all that stuff is still never going to be as interesting as listening to Trumper set all that up. Yeah, and 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 setting up the hypocrisy of it and listening to Anatoly and this those two guys and Florence even even the Arbiter that to me like that Arbiter song sets up so much on its own that you mm-hmm. don't need a bunch of that other stuff at the beginning. And I think that it's really interesting. I forgot that this one ends with the game of chess. Yeah, the story um, of chess. And there's something about, all I can say is that other than the American part, I never remember Murano. You know, the other thing this recording has is a lot of rounds. Yes, which the is quartet. The quartet, but then also the story of chess becomes a round. Yes. And and it's it, that's... That's weird. Like just from a, because when you do a round on recording, that's fine because I have I have time to listen to the song four or five times and hear what everybody's saying. But like on the Broadway recording, the quartet is just a straight quartet. Like the the characters sing the lines in succession because we need to like hear what they're saying in order to advance the story a little bit. And they're saying some interesting things. Also, this the, the funny thing that just occurred to me about Murano as you were talking. Is that any of this the the jokes we get kind of the commercialism jokes that we get in Murano we get again in the opening ceremony with yes. the merchandisers and yes. it's so much more entertaining and also much more understandable when they're singing about you can get che- clean your teeth with checkered toothpaste like it's all you know whether you're yeah. pro or anti or could not care less we're here to tell you we're here to tell to sell you chess it's a very like you get all that and I would kind of I'd rather like jump in. Blow the doors off the place because that's the kind of show it is. Well, and I, I you and know, that's, I, that's a mistake. At to the me. beginning of the concert that I watched, I think Tim Rice gets up and says, "Like, I'm still, yeah, you know, we think we may have got it this time." Mm-hmm. You know, he knows that he's. I appreciate that he's still working on it, and in oh, some yeah. respects, and like trying to get it there. Um, it's what's funny about that was, was like, like I appreciate that Tim Rice is doing it. Yes, but when George Lucas went back to trying to add like. 
computer well, that, graphics to the old Star Wars. I was like, this is totally But that's the difference to me between movies and theater. Theater is always evolving. It's always transit because that's the show true. opens and it closes yeah. and it's over. And then you do the next production, you do the next production the next. of it. Every production is different, even yes. even in some little ways. And so there's something kind of vibrant and live about restaging. So you found the concert on YouTube. I did. But you did not find chess moves on YouTube. So... No, I didn't. If you go on YouTube and Google, so what they did was they released, they made, they, they were going to make this a musical, and they decided because Tim Murray said had success with Superstar and Evita doing it this way that they would make a cast album first, which is this recording we have, and it's you know it's got ABBA and stuff, so they could get it produced. And when they then did was to promote Tim Murray sums this up beautifully, like we made an album to promote the show, and to promote the album we released singles, and to promote the singles we made videos. And I always knew about the video for One Night in Bangkok. And then I recently discovered the video for I Know Him So Well, which has some wonderful shoulder pads uh, and a lot of looking off in the middle distance. However, there is, if you, they just re-released this recording, a deluxe remastered version, which includes on it a DVD, which includes the videos they made. So they made One Night in Bangkok. Um, the Arbiter section of the open ceremony gets a video. As well it should. Nobody sighed. I Know Him So Well. And Pity the Child. I Know Him So Well was also a hit in England. It was not a hit here, but it was a hit in, in England. And they are, they're all just like, if you know the music video for One Night in Bangkok, I'll post the YouTube link on the Facebook page when this episode goes up, because it's just the greatest, like, sitting, staring, like, big black space guy standing on a white cube, singing sort of to no, like to heads kind of randomly. It's it's bananas. It's great. You got to watch amazing. them. They're so and there's interstitials with Tim Rice. And it, they're they're so poorly like I mean it's this great video interstitials where he comes out and he's just like Bjorn Skiffs sings the part of the arbiter in chess. And in this next song, he's warning the American and the Russian that he's the arbiter. He knows the score. From square 1, he'll be watching all 64. Bjorn Skiffs plays the Arbiter, who might be known to film nerds out there as uh, the lead singer of the song uh, Hooked on a Feelin' that you can hear on the... Uh, oh, Blue Swede. Yeah, Blue Swede on the uh, Reservoir Dog soundtrack. Yes, the Uga Chaka, Uga 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 Chaka. You're That's him. yourself. You may know it from Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, it is on Guardians of the Galaxy, isn't it? Yeah. Wow, I am dating myself. Look at that. Soundtrack. Nerds. It's come all around. Came around. Look at that. It did. On the tape. Well, this was great. Any final Jason, thoughts? Jason, any final chess? thoughts for you? It's me. It's my podcast, dude. Any final thoughts for you on <laughs> chess? <laughs> Would you say this is an album you think everybody should have? Or do you think they should maybe see the concert and then if they like the concert, find? Because I personally would recommend the Broadway one over this one if you don't know the show. But... I don't know. It's hard for me to say because if you like moment. '80s music, that's the one you're going to like. Like that's this. This is the sure. So here's like. my. I guess my thing is like if you if you're in is musical theater, maybe start with the Broadway. But if you're not actually a musical theater person, mm. and you're in is more that you're into synth rock and stuff right. like that, and you're thinking about ways to get people into it. The concept album may actually you know similar to Who's Tommy, you know, like yeah. give them the album and then bring them to see the show, and they get to see. There's something exciting when people first get into it if they have stuff in their head and they like the song and then they see it three-dimensionally realized. Mm-hmm. That can be very exciting for people because it unlocks the power of theater. Yeah. It's one thing if you just see a thing and you go, okay, so this is what it was always was. But if you hear a song and you just like it as a song and then suddenly you see it brought to life in this incredible way, if it's done really well, there's sort of magic to that. Mm-hmm. And 
So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I think it would depend on the person. You play chess? Not for a long time. You know how, though. I do. You know what I just played for the first time? I just played for the first time. Bocce. You know what's really fun? Bocce. Bocce. Oh, yeah. No, I never played before. Oh, like half my family's Italian. I play bocce a lot. Bocce's great. Oh, bocce's great. Why have I ever gone bowling? Bocce changes as you go. (laughs) Do you ever play uh, ladder golf? No. Oh, it's the greatest game in the world. Never. We'll play sometime. We'll get, we'll get a yard. We'll play ladder golf. Everyone everyone in L.A. who knows me knows that I'm a ladder golf fanatic. But anyway, we're way off. Chess good? Chess. Chess good. I think chess. <laughs> chess great. Chess got me in a theater, man. Chess. Where you still live to this day. Chess was my gateway drug. Yeah. And now. And now here we are. Now here we are. Full t- full-blown addicts. In this, tiny, <laughs> in this tiny little studio. So you're not on the social media. Flying V is, though. Flying V is. Flying V is. Yeah. At Flying V. At Flying V Theater at with Flying an R-E on Twitter. Flying V Theater on Facebook. Flying V Theater at gmail.com, the email, and flyingvtheater.com on the web. So the next thing that we're going to be having going up is Matt and Ben, co-written by Mindy Kaling of yes. The Office uh, and Mindy Kaling Project fame and Brenda Withers, directed by Matt Bassett, who's the Associate Artistic Director of The Hub Theater. Uh, featuring company members Katie Jeffries and Tia Shear Bassett. And this is a show about Matt Damon and Ben Affleck having found the script for Goodwill Hunting magically fallen from the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, and I will say that the show was originally written um, during the like the Geely era. But what I love about it is that reapproaching it, I think, 10, 15 years later, it's actually an even stronger show because the hindsight that we have about what happened to that relationship and that friendship makes this a piece that really looks at sort of a turning point of what success does to two different people Mm -hmm. um, and changes that. And it's also incredibly funny, and I'm very excited about it. That's going to go up in June at the Writer Center in Bethesda, and you can check out that information at flyingvtheater.com. And then I personally, Jason, am directing a show for a company called Live Art DC that will go up in May. Uh, and that is May 19th, in fact. And that is The Merry Death of Robin Hood that will take place at DC Reynolds, which is a bar in Petworth. This is a totally original show. Actually, in a bar, you get to drink and sing and, and just be merry with the merry men while we attend the funeral of Robin of Loxley. Oh, Wow. Nice. Yeah. I'm coming to that. So That's going to be two fun. Two shows to come up and see. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. And Flying V, always exciting, always thrilling. Are you doing Flying V fights again soon? Not this year. There is a tentative plan for tentative plan for 2017 to oh. possibly do Flying V fights, some red-handed sleight of hand, which would be a magic and supernatural based, oh. inspired by the cursive album, Some Red-Handed if you live, Sleight of Hand. If you live in the DMV and you haven't seen Flying V fights, go see Flying V fights. I will say this fall, we're doing not Flying V fights, but another devised kind of movement based. So this time it's called Be Awesome, a theatrical mixtape of the 90s. It's a night of live action music videos set to 90s songs. Uh, and it's actually this one is about um, a father, a soon-to-be father who finds out that he's dying and that he's going oh, to yeah, you die before um, his child is born and putting together a mix CD uh, to leave for the child he'll never know. Yeah, I, th- I think that the the big thing to take away if you're is your tagline for Flying V is that it's theater for people who think they don't like theater and and expect awesome be awesome yes yes that too but I think that that's absolutely true like if you if you say like ah, I don't like theater just give it a whirl you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna find you like what they do like the men's warehouse they guarantee it the original <laughs> <laughs> no, no I'm going out I'm going out on that you're- 
the men's warehouse. The original cast was recorded at the Media Production Center at American University. Special thanks to Jeffrey Madison, Tom Fish, Imani Mular, and the tireless staff of students who demand the front desk. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at Original Cast Pod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on Twitter at Unknown Penguin. If you're in the D.C. area, my 10-minute play, The Ferberizing of Coral, is part of the 2016 D.C. Source Festival as part of their Secrets and Sound block. For tickets and performance information, visit sourcefestival.org. You can email us at originalcastpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, concerns, and or public admissions of guilt. Subscribe to the Original Cast on iTunes, and while you're there, please give us a comment and a rating so other people can find the show. My thanks to Jason Slofstein for coming down here and talking to me today. And I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal.